I'm your host, David Nage. This is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Baselayer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This is David, and this is your new episode of Base Layer. Really excited about this one. I have Hart Lambert, the co-founder of UMA, with me today. Hart, how are you? I'm great. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this one. We've been focusing heavily on DeFi, um, even though I did that way back in the day, about a year and a half ago, and even though you can say that that's way back in the day. But we've been coming back to DeFi, um, as I've said many times again, that there has been this explosion in the space, uh, we had about $830 million that was locked in some of these contracts back in the end of April, and the total value locked was now about $4.6 billion. And so there's just been this absolute explosion, and everything that's happening here right now is getting really, really looked at and reviewed uh, because there's some really great innovation, and UMA is part of that. Uh, before we get into that, what UMA is uh, and how it's playing in this world, would love to hear more about your background, uh, as we talked about before. I'm going to hit on the fact that you were at Goldman. You were an interest rate trader back in the day, um, and that you've moved uh, through uh, different uh, places throughout the time. Another co-founder at Openfolio. We love this idea of traditional finance people that have crossed this chasm into digital assets. So we'd love to hear when that was and why that was, what really drew you into this world. So let's hear about it. Let's hear about what you did before and how you came into this world. Yeah, of course. Um, so I am a nerd by training, um, and I studied computer science um, in university. Um, and frankly, I never really expected to be in traditional finance. Um, honestly, uh, part of the reason there is I, I'm Canadian and I needed a visa, and I wanted to live in New York after college. And only big the only, in 2005 when I graduated, which also makes me shockingly old for crypto. Um, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the only the only jobs I could get were um, that could get at big companies that could get me visas at the time were in finance, um, and so kind of randomly I ended up as a government bond trader at Goldman um, for eight years through the financial crisis, um, which was a spectacular training ground for me and taught me kind of everything I know about finance and markets, um, and was super fun. Um, yeah, and then from there, you know, because I am a, a tech guy, I started a company called Openfolio, which is in the wealth management space. Our, our idea here was to use data, um, crowdsource or aggregate data around people's investments to help them make better investment decisions. Um, and we had lots of interesting um, nuggets of information that basically showed how poor most people's investment decisions are. Um, and that company uh, got acquired uh, by an asset manager a couple of years ago which uh, left me with some free time to move into um, UMA. Um, yeah, I guess what I'd also add is just, you know, I've been, in, I've been drawn to this idea of programming incentive structures. I look at crypto and frankly economics a lot as just incentive structures to push people to do things. 
Um, and I don't think there's been a pure form of it uh, of, of how you could program incentive structures until we got to crypto. Um, and so that's been really attractive to me as a computer science nerd and a finance guy and kind of like an armchair economist. Um, that's been the really attractive qualities that have drawn me into the space. Got it. So let's talk about Uma. So Uma is designed to power the financial innovations made possible by permissionless public blockchains like Ethereum. Using concepts borrowed from fiat financial derivatives, Uma defines an open source protocol that allows any two counterparties to design and create their own financial contracts. So let's talk about that. We've had a few people on that are doing things in this idea of synthetics. Talk to us about Uma. If you had to, you know, obviously, as you know, the listenership is family offices and institutional investors. How would you really kind of break this down to make it more digestible? Any analogies that would make it something they can understand getting away from kind of the crypto native kind of techno language that we use? Yeah, I think there's a lot of analogies here, how what we're doing just relates to traditional finance. Um, so one way of thinking about UMA, which stands for universal market access, and I'll come back to why we named it that in a second. Um, but one way to think about UMA is that it's a system to let people write anonymous financial contracts. So two people to write a financial contract that says they're going to do something, they're going to be entitled to some financial payout under a series of events, um, but anonymously, without knowing who they are. Um, and the anonymous bit here isn't, has, doesn't have anything to do with like hiding identity so much as it allows it to be um, global. Um, and I think the best way to explain this is to look at traditional financial contracts. You take any swap or derivative or really frankly, any financial product. Um, and it's a financial contract at its heart, at its heart uh, written between counterparties based on identity and based on a legal system where if you don't follow that contract, you'll ultimately get sued. Like somebody will come to your door and serve you with a subpoena or, or notice or take you off to court or jail or something. And um, that's been the way we've written finance traditionally so far. Mm -hmm. um, it works pretty well, but there are some real problems with it, where namely finance is localized. Like writing financial contracts between jurisdictions is hard um, and only really accessible to people with wealth uh, or, or for kind of big enough trades. Um, and it's, it's really not like an internet native way of thinking about financial contracts or, or, or really transferring financial risk. So, David, like right now, if you and I want to write a financial contract um, to bet on the price of gold, mm -hmm. uh, we can, you know, get ISDA agreements and hire lawyers and do uh, do a bunch of diligence on each other and write that under uh, U.S. law, perhaps, mm -hmm. maybe. But really, that's only accessible to us if we have uh, significant means and are going to do a really big trade or basically we're, we're hedge funds. Um, the concept of trying to write a contract between the two of us that is not enforced in the legal system, but is instead enforced by the blockchain is a really interesting idea, a really interesting problem and kind of the core problem that we set out to solve. So, yeah. So, yeah. Let's, let's, let's dig into that. Um, okay. So you and I are in this potential, you know, trade, if you will, we, you believe that gold is going to go down. I believe it's going to go up over a set period of time. Let's call it six months. 
And so the idea is that we use a smart contract in there. So it, it disintermediates anyone in the middle there, any kind of rent seeker. And you have a smart contract in there and you have your protocol that's basically ex, you know, making sure that that is running smoothly. And then you have price oracles there to effectively validate or invalidate you know, the, the so-called contract, the smart contract. Talk to us about kind of the ins and outs of there as I've laid it out. Have I expressed everything there? And then I think one of the things that would be interesting is that in traditional finance, you have disputes. You have someone saying, hey, I didn't say that, or I didn't mean to do that. Or even if it's in the contract, you have lawyers that basically look at a contract and they, you know, I think as Nick Zaba said, there's a difference between wet and dry law and wet law is where you have interpretations and you have all the different disputes. You know, what happens if there's a dispute in, in some of these things, especially vis-a-vis -vis smart contracts? So talk to us about, you know, the ability of smart contracts, the role of a smart contract within this kind of framework, oracles, and then any kind of disputes. David, that's the perfect framing, because I actually think this is how we're different from a lot of the way DeFi is written. Um, let's start with the, the simple contract that we agreed to, this six-month trade, the six-month kind of binary bet on the price of gold. Like, let's just say we make a bet. Um, uh, you pay me a million dollars if gold is above 2,000 in six months, and I pay you a million dollars if it's below. Um, and if you think about, first of all, the logic of that trade, we can pretty easily encapsulate that in a smart contract. That's very clear, those terms. We just write them in computer code. Um, all works out and makes sense. It all works out and makes sense, though, if you and I agree on what the price of gold is in six months' time and what that payout should be. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so far, like all good, if we just, hey, um, if we, you and I both agree on the price of gold in six months time, great, I, you get your million bucks or I do, and life goes on. All the kind of like, like nitty gritty comes down to disputes as you frame them. And, you know, what a lot of DeFi projects do is they trust uh, a centralized price oracle. They trust someone else that's going to tell them the price of this thing. And uh, it's kind of the weakest point in most DeFi systems where this, 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 this price oracle is going to can determine the payout of this million dollar bet we made. Um, we look at things a little bit differently, right? So rather than trust this sort of centralized price oracle, what we instead do is we start with saying, um, with the default point where if you and I agree on what the outcome is, great. We just make our payout and we go on and we don't actually have to talk to anybody else. And the analogy here would be like a traditional fiat contract, where if you and I write, wrote this bet under like on paper under the laws of the state of New York, our intention is that we just fulfill the contract without actually having to like sue anybody without having to dispute it. That's the baseline case. The flip side is like, what if we don't agree? What if there's a dispute? What if it's right around 2000 bucks and we don't know which way it's supposed to go? In that case, the way our system is architected is if and when there is a dispute, it goes to our Oracle, which we call the data verification mechanism. And this is an, a decentralized Oracle. It's effectively like a decentralized jury of voters who will vote uh, in an economically incentivized game They'll vote to say, hey, the price was, you know, 1900 or the price was 2100 and that will determine the payout of our contract. 
So the, the kind of long and short of it is that um, the stripe of type of contract we write is inspired by how traditional contracts work in the paper, in the fiat world, where you write the logic down and you hope that the counterparties agree on whether that contract has been fulfilled or not, and no need for a court system. Right. If, however, there is a dispute, it goes to our decentralized oracle for resolution. And so let's talk about the decentralized oracle there for a second, the DVM. So I'm guessing that there is a, a token that's at staked somehow and that there is delegation also. So if you are a holder, uh, you can delegate to others out there that you feel or you wouldn't trust a little bit more. Is that kind of how it works? At a high level, yeah. Uh, we essentially have token holders who uh, vote uh on uh what we call price requests like whether what the price of a given asset was at a given time um and these token holders get rewarded uh if they vote correctly and correctly here is defined as voting with majority so there's this interesting game theory it's sort of uh the the the, the term you uh, often use is shelling point where our voters are economically motivated to report the truth and we can kind of prove with like fancy math and game theory and economics um, that we can actually design a system where really truly voters will report the truth uh, to earn this reward. Got it. And I'm guessing if they do not behave correctly, then their stake is burned. Slightly different. Like we have, um, uh, it's economically equivalent where we pay rewards only to people that vote correctly. And so anyone that votes incorrectly or doesn't participate um, gets penalized by basically being diluted. So you you miss out on opportunity, and that's really just an implementation detail. So you, you get hurt if you don't participate or you vote incorrectly. Um, you get rewarded if you participate and vote correctly. Got it. Got it. So let's talk about what you can do with this thing. So we talked about gold, but in terms of the grander spectrum of assets out there, what can you do and what can you kind of create here using Uma? Yeah, so we really look at this as a way to a general purpose infrastructure to write financial contracts. And I'll leave it like broad, like I mean, financial contracts of all types. Um, but where we've started, because that's like pretty big and we can't boil the ocean, um, is with synthetic assets. So writing contracts that create uh, uh, crypto tokens, so digital assets that are meant to be a crypto token that um, is, tracks the value of another thing. And then these tokens become assets that people can move around, hold in their crypto wallets, buy and sell, et cetera, um, that are synthetic representations of a real world uh, price index commodity or uh, any kind of like in, any kind of index or really any kind of data feed mm -hmm. that you can think of. Um, yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit more. So we, you gave examples on your blog. And by the way, I recommend everyone checking out the blog. We'll put uh, show notes on there. So you put a few different examples, create a token that tracks the price of CNY and DAI and use it to power a China-focused wallet, get leverage short exposure to Tesla by creating tokens that track the price of Tesla and then selling them on a DEX. You just have to find the one willing to go long on Tesla and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that would be interesting. So anything that has a price feed is what I'm guessing. What if it's something, what if it's an asset that has an intrinsic price on it, something that has been valued, something that has had a, a price attributed to it, maybe even a portfolio of buildings that has had a price to it. Could you do something in the future where you get to be a little bit more real asset based? 
uh, 100% um, with one kind of caveat here, where our enforcement mechanism is that the voters can report the price of the thing um, when there's a dispute. So our real requirement here is that whatever we're creating a synthetic asset or synthetic version of, we need it to be, um, we need the voters to be able to verify what the price should be if there's a dispute. So portfolio of buildings where there is like a, a clear transparency in what's in that portfolio and maybe some sort of knowing characteristics about uh, the, the, the value of that portfolio would qualify. But there's a little bit of gray area here where if it's like a very opaque asset that's hard for the voters to value, um, it might be difficult with the way the system is built today. Got it. Would really love to hear your thoughts on, you know, something that we've talked a lot about, liquidity mining or yield farming, that it's been the soup du jour over the last few months or so. That meme has started to obviously get incredibly important. Um, would love to hear your thoughts on Uma's role or lack thereof in this whole kind of narrative of yield farming. Yeah, we're involved and um, it's a powerful tool to start there. Um, the, the framework I have or the, the mental model I have for yield farming um, is like Uber Eats and Postmates and DoorDash giving away free food. Um, and, you know, all these companies raise billions of dollars um, and they give away free food uh, or give you $100 off or whatever to try their service. And it's a customer acquisition strategy, right? It's like, come try this thing and you get some free food and it works like they grow super fast they get tons of people in the door um because they're giving away something for free uh except then of course like you know they stop paying that reward and they have a lot of churn and a bunch of people leave um but it's still on the margin can be a very successful customer acquisition strategy mm. the difference with with liquidity mining and this yield farming stuff though is that it's they're paying out the reward in the own the, the native asset of the project. Mm -hmm. So you're like kind of making something up that, that has value and giving it out to people who have ascribed value to it. And so it's like financing, it's like it's like financing the free food, but instead of giving people free food, you're giving people like stock and postmates or something right. like that. And if you think about this as like a, a tool, this is a really freaking powerful tool to incentivize people to do an action that's beneficial to your project protocol network, um, whatever you want to call it. You incentivize people to do this tool, but you're incentivizing them with uh, a native asset the project itself has created. So it almost comes at zero cost to the project if done correctly. So let's dig a little deeper in there. So we've seen Compound with Comp. We've seen Balancer with Bal. We've seen, you, you mentioned this idea of native tokens. Does Uma have one or plan to have one? We do have one, the UMA token. Um, and we have used this token to incentivize liquidity provision in a synthetic asset. Um, and it worked incredibly well. Um, we continue to do it right now. So we're giving away 25,000 Umas. Or we're distributing 25,000 Umas a week. Uh, to uh, to liquidity providers, to people who provide liquidity um, in uh, this synthetic asset we've created called YUSD, which is effectively like a fixed term loan um, on Ethereum, uh, against Ethereum, which we could also talk about. Um, and the program has uh, uh, very successfully driven deep liquidity in that asset 
mm-hmm. um, out of the gate, um, which is pretty wild. Let's talk about that in terms of liquidity providers. I think a lot of people are going to get interested in this as they learn more about it. Who, as of right now, without obviously naming names, what type of entities are becoming liquidity providers? The fascinating thing here is a surprising amount of this is grassroots. Like, I I really think a lot of this is going to be like, you know, uh, like 18, like 17 year old kids in their parents' basement. I I honestly think there's like a decent number of them that are providing liquidity in small amounts, but they just summed over uh, a large uh, sample. Um, There are other, like, I do know of some other more like quasi institutional guys that are almost running like, like RV, like relative value hedge fund Mm -hmm. type strategies here too. Um, uh, But the fascinating thing here is the democratization of access to market making and liquidity provision within finance, where you really are, this is like the same, you know, it's analogous to the same explosion of like blogging on the internet. Like before you had to be a writer at a newspaper to write something that got any distribution and then blogs happen and you can write, you know, anyone basically can write something that can have massive distribution. Um, the same sort of concepts are happening here too, where before there was really high barriers to entry to be a high frequency market maker um, or to provide liquidity or generally access market making functions in finance. Um, what this DeFi thing has done is massively lowered that barrier to entry. Um, and I think really democratized access, assets, access. So you have a ton of little guys that sum up into a pretty powerful um, uh, pool of liquidity. That's a great last point. I'd love for you to tell people where they can learn more about UMA. And obviously, if there are investors out there that are interested in it and want ways to learn how to do more, where can people go to learn all that good stuff? Best place is just to go to our website, umaproject.org, umaproject.org, um, and on Twitter, uh, UMA Protocol. Um, those are the best places to, to find out more. Awesome. This was Hart Lambert, the co-founder of UMA, a project, as I mentioned, that has becoming a very big part of this explosion in DeFi. Hart, hopefully we can have you back on in a few months. I know everyone is rapidly putting out new, you know, kind of components and they're doing new pieces to their roadmap. Hopefully we can catch you in the next few months and see how everything's progressing over there. Sounds great, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening in to Baselayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, one of the best digital asset event and media production companies that I know of. For exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. You won't be disappointed.